Okay. So Galatians 3, 15 to 24, once again, we're back in our sermon series on Galatians, and an easy way to remember, once again, the purpose of this book is in the first letter of Galatians, the letter G. This book is all about the grace of God, okay? I spent years in seminary just to learn that, so you're welcome, okay? You're very welcome. So here we go, Galatians 3, let me read our verses 15 to 24, and then we're going to jump in, all right? So verse 15. The Apostle Paul says this, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and two offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place through the angels, through an intermediary. Now, the intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. This is the word of God. There was a rumor going around town that a woman was having regular visions of Jesus. Word eventually got to the local bishop, and he finds this woman. Upon meeting her, he asks her, there's a rumor that you have visions of Jesus. Is that true? She said, yes, it's true. I have it quite frequently. The bishop asked, well, what happens during these visions? She simply said, I talk with Jesus. The bishop, with a great deal of skepticism, says to her, can you do me a favor? The next time you have a vision of Jesus, can you ask him to tell what sins I confessed at my last confessional? The woman's like, whoa, hold up here. This is really, really personal stuff. Are you sure you want me to do this? The bishop said, you have my permission. Please ask him. Well, a few days pass. And the woman reaches back out to the bishop and tells him, Bishop, I've had another vision of Jesus. And the bishop, with great anticipation, asks her, Well, did you ask him? Did you ask him? Did you ask him the sins I confessed at my last confessional? She said, Yes. And this is what Jesus told me. I don't remember. I don't remember. Friends, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. He forgives our sins and remembers it no more. 
That as the psalmist says, that as far as the east is from the west, so far is our sins removed from us. For the last many weeks now, we've been in the sermon series in the book of Galatians, which has once again been all about God's grace, that we are justified by his grace through faith and not by works. Any other world religion will tell you to prove yourself worthy by working, doing this, doing this, and then you'll be accepted and loved. It's only in Christianity that you are told that you are already accepted and loved, not through any achievement of your own, but through an achievement of another. Our salvation is purely an act of God's loving grace through Jesus Christ. And this is the truth that is being attacked in the letter in the churches to Galatia here, that there's false teachers and Judaizers who have come into the church and they're saying to the people in churches, grace is not enough. Jesus is not enough. You also need works. And once you have done enough, then you'll be acceptable before God. The apostle Paul writes this letter to defend the gospel of grace. He confronts these Judaizers and says in chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, that if anyone, even even myself was to come to you and teach you a different gospel, let them be accursed. In other words, let them go to hell because this is a teaching from the pits of hell. And this is where we land in our verses today because Paul, again, is defending the gospel of grace, but this time he's dealing with the technicality that these Judaizers have brought up. Paul summarizes it in verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? You know, so what's going on here is that these Judaizers right now are using biblical history to prove that you need works for salvation, that they acknowledge that Abraham received his blessing from God by faith. In chapter 3, verse 6, it says that Abraham believed God and God counted to him as righteousness. That it was Abraham's faith in God's promise, not in his own works, that made him righteous before God. And then Paul continues on in verse 7 of chapter 3. Thus, if anyone has faith alone in God, they are the sons of Abraham. They too will receive the promises of God. They too will be saved like Abraham by grace alone, faith alone, and not by works. But this is where the Judaizers push back because they point out, well, Paul, that's true, but do you realize that 430 years later, after the promise to Abraham, Moses shows up and gives the law. He gives the Ten Commandments. He tells us what to eat and not eat. He tells us what to wear and not wear. There are over 600 plus laws God has given us to follow. So clearly, this must mean that faith alone is not enough. Why else would God give us the law after the promise if not to earn his blessing? It's kind of like this. Salvation by faith was version 1.0, but now through Moses, God has released a better version, version 2.0, salvation by the law, by works. This is the technicality Paul is confronting in our verses. Now, let me just say this. This is very practical applications for us in everyday life, because we also have to ask, too, what does the role of the law, of works, of rule following play in the life 
of believers. Do we still need to obey Old Testament law? Should I eat shellfish? Can I have bacon? You know, do I need to be circumcised? What role does the Old Testament law play in my life today? Or maybe for some of us here, this doesn't really concern us because you know what? I'm a New Testament Christian. Rule following is so passe, you know what I mean? It's all about grace now. But here's the thing. In the New Testament, it's also filled with rules. Love your neighbor. Be generous. Be holy like I'm holy. Be holy like I'm holy. God is holy. Don't lie. Care for the poor. Even without the Old Testament, there are plenty of rules in the New Testament. And if I can take this one step further, when the Bible says that we're no longer under law, but we're now under grace, does this mean that all rule following is bad? Is it wrong for me or Rafe as a church leader to exhort you to pray often, to read your Bible, don't sleep around, to serve? Am I leading you away from grace? Or how about to some of the parents in the room here? We have tons of rules in our homes, right? For example, in my home, don't eat off the floor, don't play on the street, please don't bite your brothers, eat your vegetables. Now, what if my sons came back to me and said, Dad, Jesus has freed me from the law. I'm going to say it's my way or the highway. Now, am I being a Pharisee? Am I teaching my kids works-based acceptance? Do you guys see? This is very practical for us. What is the role of the law? What is the role of rule following in the life of believers? You know, in our verses, Paul answers this in two parts. First, in verses 15 to 18, he tells us the purpose of the promise And second, in verses 19 to 24, he tells us the purpose of the law. 15 to 18, purpose of the promise. 19 to 24, purpose of the law. Now, for the sermon, we're going to spend most of our time on the purpose of the law because the first part of the promise here, a lot of the themes that we're going to be talking about have already been covered in previous messages, okay? So let's quickly work through this first point. The purpose of the promise in verses 15 to 18. The Apostle Paul here starts off by using a very everyday example of a contract to explain why the law does not void the promise. Verse 15, to to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. What Paul is saying here is that once a contract has been set, it is set. Many years ago, I bought a used car, a 1998 Nissan Pathfinder. It was my dream car, and I was in a car lot. I was already taking selfies with it. It was probably the easiest sell in car selling history. Now, all over the car, on the windshield, in the negotiations, on the contract, in these bold letters, it said, as is as is. That what it means is that once the car leaves the lot, whatever happens to the car, it is my problem. Now, being naive and way too eager, I sign a contract and off I go. But guess what happens 24 hours later? It breaks down and I am furious. I call the dealership. I tell them my situation. I ask for a refund or at the very least they can make the repairs here. And they said in the nicest way possible, Sir, on the contract, did you see the words, as is? I was like, oh, this is not right. I'm sorry for your situation, but this does not change the agreement. This is the defense 
Paul gives. The reason the law can't change the promise is because the promise was based on an unchangeable agreement. So it doesn't matter if the circumstances have changed. It doesn't matter that the law came after. The promise received by faith continues to be a promise received by faith. And Paul continues by saying that this promise is not rooted in man. It's rooted in a covenant made by God. Verse 17, and this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. That as secure as man-made promises are in verse 15, God-made promises are rock solid. The language Paul is using is meant to point these Judaizers back to Genesis 15 when God made the covenant with Abraham. That in the story, Abraham falls into a deep sleep, and in this sleep, God begins to lay out the conditions of this covenant. He tells Abraham to have these animals cut in half, and traditionally what would happen next is that the people making this covenant together would walk through the middle of these animals. Now, it sounds gruesome, but it was very symbolic, because by doing this, you were saying to each other in the covenant that if I am to break this covenant, may I die like these animals. But here's the thing. In the dream, only God passes through the animals, not Abraham. In other words, all the conditions of this promise, all the demands of this blessing, God put it on himself. That God never needed anything from Abraham to make this promise happen. He didn't need him to be cleaned up. He didn't need to bring the law to bear. He didn't need him to be circumcised. So this is why it's impossible to add or tweak to the promise because the promise is rooted in God alone and in his grace alone. And this is why it's such good news because what it means is that his acceptance of us also will never waver. His love for us is no different from the first day of our salvation to our final breath because his acceptance of us is not based on what we can do or what we cannot do, what color we are, what color we're not, what culture you are, what culture you're not. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. Our acceptance rests purely on his perfection and faithfulness. The promise that we have is unchanging because our God is unchanging. Amen? Amen. The purpose of the promise was to prove that our acceptance before God is always by grace through faith and not by works. It cannot be changed. And this leads to the second question. What then is the purpose of the law? What then is the purpose of the law if it's not to save us? You know, I want to answer this in two categories. I want to share with you guys the assets of the law and the deficits of the law. And just let me show you the table behind me here. So for the assets, let me share two with you. The law helps us see our need for a Savior. The law protects us from greater sin. And the deficits of the law, and here are two of them too. The law alone makes us fear God. The law alone condemns us, okay? So let's first work through the assets of the law here. So first, the law helps us to see our need for a Savior. Uh, Verse 19 says this, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. What Paul is saying here is that when God gives us the law, it's not to tell us about salvation, it's to tell us about our sin. 
The law shows us over and over again that the problem is me. It's my pride. It's my covetousness. It's my anger. It's my greed. The law proves that I cannot be the solution. For example, this is why God gives the sacrificial system, because he knew that we could not obey the law perfectly, so God needed to make a way where we can be made right with him again, that instead of us dying for our sins, he lets an animal die in our place. And every time we would go back to sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice, it was meant to tell you, you can't obey the law. You can't follow God as you should. You can't save yourself. Someone else must save you. And it's in this way, the law and the promise do not contradict each other, but complement one another. It's like when you go wedding ring shopping, right? The jeweler doesn't just take out the diamond and just like toss it on the glass display, right? No, 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 no. The jeweler knows that the best way to see this diamond is to see the beauty and the sparkle is to lay this on a black felt pad. And let me just show you a diamond here, okay? This, this is the one that I got from my wife, okay? Now, it's, it's, it's on that dark background that diamond shines best. In the same way, the good news of Jesus is this incredible diamond, and the law serves to show this baby off. The law exposes the darkness of our own hearts so that Jesus can shine all the brighter. Now, let me ask you, do you recognize the sinfulness of your own heart? Now, for many of us here, you know, we're not going to say that we're perfect, but overall, many of us believe that, you know, I'm not all that bad. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. At least, you know, I'm not like those criminals or terrorists or racists or murderers, you know, on TV. Uh, but there's a problem when we do this, because when we compare ourselves to others, we always compare our goodness with people we think that are less than us. We never, ever compare ourselves to people like Mother Teresa, Nelson Mandela, you know, Billy Graham, because we know that if we were to do this, we know that we would not be that good. And here's the thing. The moral standard that God has put before us is not against other people or other really good people. It's worse than that. It's put against his holiness, against his perfection. And all of us miss the mark, not by an inch, but by hundreds of miles. Now, why is recognizing this depravity important? It's because the more you believe that you're not that bad, the less you will want Jesus. The, th th thank you for agreeing with that. Okay. But the more you understand God's holiness, the more you feel the weight of these 613 laws in the Old Testament, the more you will long for Jesus, the only one who can save you. This is why for us as a church, we are unapologetic in calling people to repentance. Because for a church to be soft about sin, to be soft about the judgment of God, is to rob from you the joy, hope, and life that can be found in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. The law shows us who we are and who we need, Jesus Christ. Here's the second asset. The law protects us from greater sin. Verse 23 and 24 says this. Now before faith came, 
we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, Paul here gives us two pictures of the law. The first picture of it is, is imprisonment. That is a picture of being locked up by military guards. And the second picture he gives is a guardian. And in this, in this historical context, a guardian or a tutor would have been someone responsible to supervise the children in the house. Now, what these two pictures have in common is that the prison guard and the guardian took freedom away. They put boundaries in a person's life. Or if I can say it this way, the law acts like a leash. Okay. Now, for example, when people walk their dogs, sometimes we see dogs without a leash. Why? Because the master knows that the dog is mature enough to understand what to do and not do. The master knows that when he calls or she calls, the dog will come. However, when you see a dog on a leash, it, it happens because the master doesn't trust the dog, doesn't trust the dog enough to be mature enough to handle its freedom well. So the dog has to be reined in. When God gives us the law, it was a way for him to restrain the wickedness in our hearts. This is why rules in themselves are not bad. Because in areas where we are weak and immature, we need limits. We need boundaries. For example, for some of us who struggle with lust or porn, right, we buy software, we have accountability, we share it in small group, we put, computer, we put the computer in the living room. Why? So we don't give the devil a foothold in our lives. For some of us, drinking is a real problem, so we put a limit on how much we can drink and where we can drink. Some of us get lazy with their time with God, so we make a rule to do our quiet times at the same time every day. Rules can help us in areas that we're weak. But I want to be clear. Rules can restrain evil, but it does not make us righteous. You know, for example, many of us here, we don't speed badly. Now, notice I didn't say we didn't speed, okay? We just don't do it really bad, okay? We're not driving like 100 miles down the hour or down an alley. Now, why don't we do that? Why don't we speed crazy like that? Is it because we're righteous? No. It's because we're scared to get a ticket, right? That's what the law does. The law cages the lion, but it doesn't change the nature of the lion. The law doesn't make us holy. It puts us in check. The law restrains our evil hearts. And this leads me to the two deficits of the law. And the first one is this. The law alone makes us fear God. Because of this, if our Christianity is nothing more than following rules, it makes God very impersonal. It makes, it makes him into a taskmaster and not someone who loves us and is calling us to a relationship with him. You know, did you guys know that Michael Jackson, growing up in his house, did not call his dad, dad, but called him Joseph? Why? Well, it's because when his dad would come home from work, he would clear out the living room, push the sofa, sofas and the tables to the side, and he would have his kids perform their routine. And if any of them screwed up, the belt would come out. They called him Joseph and not dad because he was not someone to be loved, but someone to fear. Some of us relate to God in this way. 
We don't know him as a personal dad, that it's all about do's and don'ts. It's all about being afraid when you're around him. And can I just say, I can't imagine but how much this must hurt the heart of our God. That when I think about this with my kids, that one day they will move out. It's going to be a long time, but they will move out, okay? And I don't want them looking back and telling their kids, yeah, you know, dad, he was really overbearing. All he cared about was catching me doing wrong, and I was scared of him. That would break my heart. Now, don't get me wrong. I have rules in my house, and there will always be rules in my house, not because my kids want it, but because my kids need it. As a parent in this season of life, rules is one of the best ways that I can love them. But if all they ever remembered about me was rules, it would destroy me. I want my kids to remember us laughing together, horse playing, movie nights, worshiping and serving God together. I want them to remember how much we loved each other. This is how your God wants to be known. Not as, and not as a disciplinarian, he wants to be known as your father. When Jesus teaches us to pray, he says our father and not our rule giver. Do you know how to be in the presence of your heavenly father? Do you enjoy being with him? Or is being with him more of a checklist? Well, you know, good. I did my quiet time this morning. Check. I went to church this morning. Check. But did you spend quality time with him? Is God your loving father? Or is he more like Joseph Jackson? The law without grace makes us fear God. And here's the second deficit of the law. The law alone condemns us. Verse 21 says this. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Paul says here, the law does not and cannot give life. The law does not, once again, tell us about our salvation. It tells us about our sin. The law tells us of our need for righteousness. It does not make us right with God. And if all we have is the law, all it would do day in and day out in our lives is condemn us. You know, Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, once said this. Let me show it to you. It's a long quote but I think it's helpful for us to understand what's going on here. He said this, Although I lived a blameless life as a monk, I felt that I was a sinner with an uneasy conscience before God. I also could not believe that I had not pleased him with my works. Far from loving that righteous God who punished sinners, I actually hated him. I was a good monk and kept my order so strictly that if, that if I could say that if ever a monk could get to heaven through monastic discipline, I was that monk. And yet my conscience would not give me certainty. But I always doubted and said, you didn't do that right. You weren't contrite enough. You left that out of your confession. One time, Martin Luther was in confession for six hours. Six hours confessing his sins, and he still felt that that wasn't good enough. 
Friends, if your relationship with God is nothing more than rules, the condemnation will never go away. If your relationship with God is nothing but rules, 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 you are not free. You are still in bondage. The law terrorizes you. Some of you are here at church because of this anxiety. You've had a bad week. You had a bad Saturday night. And you're coming to church because you want to be clean. You often doubt that God loves you because all you can see is the mistakes that you've made. That you sit here and you hear about God's grace, but all you can feel is guilt. You are still living by the law. You're still in bondage. You're still in chains. Chains. Verse 21, the law does not give life. So what's the good news here? Because we always get there. We see it in two places in our verses. Verses 19 and 24. Verse 19, why didn't the law? It was added because of transgressions. And if you guys like circling in your Bibles, this is the word to circle. Until the offspring should come. Verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came. The good news is in this word until, because what it tells us is that the law has not been given free reign forever. It is not allowed to crush forever. It is not allowed to condemn forever because Jesus has come. Because in Jesus, everything that is crushing about the law, Jesus obeys perfectly for us. And not just the word of the law, but the heart of the law. But not only that, he also takes on the wrath of God. He takes the punishment of all our rule breaking and what it deserved and puts it on himself. That he becomes the ultimate sacrifice. He becomes the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When Paul gives us the word until, he is telling us that the law was never meant to be our hope. Instead, our hope was to look beyond the law, what was coming after the law, and it was to look to Jesus Christ. Do you guys see? The law can no longer terrorize us because Christ has come. And in him, we've been made righteous before God because when God sees us, he sees his son, Jesus Christ. And what that means is that for some of you who live in this shadow of guilt, you always feel weighed down by your failures and your shortcomings. Look at what God is saying to you right now. The nightmare is over. The terrorizing is done. Rest in Jesus Christ. This also means that for some of us, we have to stop measuring our relationship with God by how much or how little you're doing. That some of us are so consumed with making ourselves better Christians. You know, my quiet times need to be longer. My prayers need to be longer. I need to give more than 10%. I need to fast weekly. And all these things, are, they're not bad in themselves, but this is not why Jesus went to the cross for you. It wasn't so that you can make yourself better. He died so he could be your everything to be your righteousness, to be your joy, to be your peace, to be your life. The law will always tell us to do, 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 and then you'll be enough. Grace will always tell us Jesus is enough. Amen? Amen. So what's a quick application here? It's this. Because of the gospel, the law stops becoming a duty but becomes a delight to follow. 
Because of Jesus, we know that the law is not a means to salvation, but it's now we, how we can live a life pleasing to God. What that means is that now when I look at the law, I can delight in the law because I see the wisdom and love behind them. That the law was given to protect me. The law reveals God's character to me. It tells me how much Jesus loved me because of how he obeyed all of it for me. And when I see all of this from the law, it fills my heart with gratitude. And the way that I want to express that gratitude is by obeying that law. That's how much I want to show my love to him. You know, for example, imagine that it's my anniversary, okay? And it's already passed, okay? So I, I know when it is. And I come home and I bring my wife a romantic comedy, right? I rented a romantic comedy and some takeout sushi, two things that I know she loves. And she says to me, wow, that's so nice. You did this for me? You know, what if I answered and said to her, well, I'm your husband. It's, it's my job. Am I supposed to do something else? Here you go. Knock yourself out, right? How, how would she feel? These gifts would be a curse to her. But instead, what if I did the same thing, got the same movie, got the same takeout sushi and gave it to her, but instead I said this, sweetheart, I did this, but can I tell you something? I wish I could do more for you because of how much I love you. I want you to know just how special you are to me. I didn't really say that. I wish I did. Now, looking back, I'm, I'll do that for next year. Now, how would she feel? The gifts I got for her, the things I did for her would be a blessing to her heart. This is how the gospel changes our posture to laws, to rules, to works. They stop becoming ways to earn acceptance or to avoid punishment. They become the very way we express our love for God. Friends, just keep this in mind. When God gives us the law, it's not to kill our joy, but it's so that our joy would increase in him. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we are so grateful that the promise that we have of our salvation, the promise of grace alone, faith alone, is not based on circumstances, is not based on situations, but God, it's based purely on you and what you have done through your son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray for us in this room here today that if any of us are wrestling with that constant guilt or that constant condemnation, Father, God, will we claim your son's words that when the son sets you free, that you are free indeed. Not to, free, not to be free to live any way we want, but that now that we can be free to love you and pursue you and live in holiness. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.